0: First Chronicles, continue to study, as we've mentioned, the, the chronicler has rapidly moved into the reign of David after he went through the genealogies and quickly touched on the reign of King Saul. We're looking at the reign of King David, mentioned last time when we looked at the, the mighty men of David, those that God brought around him. And those that came alongside him. And now we, we transition now into chapter 13. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Then David consulted with the captain of the thousands and the hundreds, even with every leader. David said to all the assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you, and if it is from the Lord our God, let us send send everywhere to our kinsmen who remain in the land of Israel, also to the priests and Levites who are with them in their cities with pasture lands, that they may meet with us. And let us bring back the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. Then the assembly said that they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. So David, as, he, as we begin our look at chapter 13 tonight, David gathering together with the leaders and says, you know, we need to bring the Ark of the Covenant now to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, now the capital, we've talked about that. We looked at that a little bit last time. David now has, they've taken Jerusalem now and now this, this full area is, is part of, of, of Israel now and moving the capital there, David, the city of David there. And he says that, he, that, that it is right to bring the Ark to Jerusalem. Now, if you might wonder, okay, well, first most of us know what the Ark of the Covenant is. It's that gold box that showed up at the end of the you know, Harrison Ford movie, right? Raiders of the Lost Ark. That It's actually explained to us in Exodus chapter 25. God gives very precise and specific instructions on how to build the Ark, what is to be inside of the Ark, how it is to be transported. It gives very specific instructions, but the key to all of this is that God said, this is where I will meet with you on the mercy seat. This is where I will meet and speak with you. And that, that is such a, such a pre- treasured thing to the Jewish people. And they, they understand that God goes before them in battle. They understand that God is everywhere, but this is where God said specifically that I will meet with you. So the question is, is, well, where is it now, and how did it get there? And I'm glad you asked, because that's an important kind of segue as we look at this. It's recorded for us back in 1 Samuel, and we, I touched on this last week in a different context, but bottom line, the, the Israelites went into battle against the Philistines, and they lost this initial battle with them, and they said, why did God do this to us? I know Let's go get the ark and take that into battle with us. And everybody thought that was a great idea. They all started cheering. When the ark showed up in the camp, they started cheering, so much so that the Philistines started saying, what is going on? And one of them said, they brought the ark of the covenant, the ark of God into their camp. And the Philistines were initially afraid of that, but then they said, you know what? We're going to go out into battle anyway. See, the problem was the Jewish people looked at the ark of the covenant as their lucky rabbit's foot, if you would. We'll just take this thing into battle. It became about this gold box that it would just bring them luck in the battle. The problem is they didn't consult the God of the Ark of the Covenant. They just said, well, let's just take this into battle. So they did. The Philistines wiped them out and took the Ark. And So that when the two of the priests were killed, it got back to the high priest, their father, Eli, when he heard all of this happened, he fell off where he was sitting, broke his neck, and, I mean, just devastation throughout Israel. Well, the Philistines take the ark back, and they put it into the temple of their god, Dagon. Dagon was this half-fish, half-man god that they had this big statue of. And I mentioned last time, they brought the ark and they put the ark in front of Dagon kind of as an offering to Dagon, because obviously Dagon, the more powerful god in their eyes, defeated the god of the Israelites. So they come back the next morning, and the statue of Dagon has fallen down in a prone position in front of the ark. And they're like, Dagon. Something fishy's gone on in here. And so they stand the ark, or they stand Dagon back up, come back the next day, and again, it's fallen down in front of the ark. The hands are broken off of it, and the head is broken off. And it tells us in there that they said this in verse 7 of this is 1 Samuel chapter 5. When the men of Ashdod saw this, and that's where they took it, Ashdod, that was the name of the city. They said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is severe on us and on Dagon, our God. So after this goes on, they, they realize these, these priests, these people, that, that the, the, okay, the God of Israel is more powerful than our God. And what would you suppose their response would be, okay, let's start worshiping that God. No, their response was, no, let's send it away. Let's, let's, let's get rid of this. And it sounds like a crazy thing, right? That that would be their response. But so many times we see that as people, as people come to this realization of, of who God is and they see the power of God, yet they don't want anything to do with it. They, they say, well, just, just go away, send him away. Jesus, when he healed the demon-possessed man, when he cast the demons into the herd of pigs and they ran down and drowned in the Sea of Galilee and, and all this, when they came out and they heard and they saw all of this, their response was not falling down in worship to Jesus, but Jesus, leave us. Get away from here. And so that was their response. Let's just get rid of the ark because he, the, the, God also struck them with, with a horrible, the tumors breaking out, some believe it was like the worst case of hemorrhoids ever, bro- broke out, and the mice were all of a sudden running rampant all around. So they said, send it away. So they said, let's share this victory with Gath. <laughs> so they send the ark to Gath. It arrives there in Philistine country still, and the tumors show up and the mice show up. So the people in Gath, again, will say, let's share this with the people in Ekron. So they sent it over to Ekron. Same thing happens. So finally, the Philistines said, and they consult their priests, what do we need to do? They said, and this is the important part for our story as it's coming up. Put the ark on a cart, have it pulled by two, two oxen, and, and if it goes all the way into their territory, we'll know that that's what it's supposed to be. So they send it on its way. The ark goes to, goes to Beth Shemesh this area now in Israelite country. They, they, they celebrate, they, they sacrifices and everything to God, but they didn't watch Raiders of the Lost Ark because some of them peeked in and God struck many dead with that. And then they took the Ark then and put it in somebody's home in, in Israel. And that's where it's been now for decades. It's in Israel, but it's not. It, they didn't move it to the tabernacle. And now David is saying, Let's, we need to go get the ark and we need to bring it to Jerusalem. So it says here in verse 2, if it seems good to you and if it is from the Lord our God. And it's, those two things together are, are important. As we are seeking to do things in our lives and and follow after, we feel a prompting perhaps. It's always good to seek counsel, especially godly counsel. The Proverbs is full of examples where it says getting counsel is is wise. Those who move forward without counsel, (laughs) not smart. But notice it says and. If it seems good to you and if it is from the Lord our God. That's where it all fell apart in this initial part of our story. Because they forgot about that. It's, it's one thing to say, if, if we get good counsel and it's of the will of God, then we'll move forward. It's great to say that, but if you don't follow through with that, there's a problem. And we're going to see that that's the case, because notice in verse 4, it says, for this same thing seemed right in the eyes of all the people. So the counsel was, was there, but they didn't consult the Lord and in his word, and we're going to see what happens with that. Verse 5 says, so David assembled all Israel together from Shihor of Egypt, even to the entrance of Hamath, to bring the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim. David and all Israel went up to Bala, that is to Kiriath-Jerim, which belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, the Lord who is enthroned above the cherubim, where his name is called. They carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab, and Uzzah and Iho drove the cart. David and all Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all their might, even with songs and with lyres and harps and tambourines, cymbals and with trumpets. Sounds great, right? I mean, everything, could it be even any better? Here, we're going to do this. It's got to be God's will that we do this thing. I mean, everybody's in agreement that we do this. And the celebration, can you imagine the worship that is breaking out? Everybody is in agreement with this. Everybody is so excited about this thing. Look what happens in verse 9. When they came to the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah put out his hand to hold the ark because the oxen nearly upset it. The anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, so he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark and he died there before God. They're moving along. Everything's going great. Got a new cart. Got oxen pulling it. They even got it. it says they're, they're driving it. They're, they, they get, they get, they're in control. They're, everything's going along. It says that the oxen, it tells us in the other word, they stumbled. So the cart, they, they stumble. The ark starts shaking off of the cart. Uzzah, one of the priests reaches out and he touches the ark, trying to keep it from falling off and falling into the dirt. And it says that God struck him dead when he touched it. It tells us in 2 Samuel 6, when the story is recorded for us there, that God struck him because of his irreverence. And that's an important thing to note because it tells us in Numbers chapter 4, verse 15, speaking of how the ark is to be transported. It says when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the holy objects and all furnishings of the sanctuary when the camp is set out after that the sons of Koath they shall carry them so they will not touch the holy objects and die these are the things in the tent of meeting which the sons of Koath are to carry specifically stated in Exodus 25, as I mentioned earlier, these staffs were put through these rings on the ark and that is how it was to be transported. Never touching the ark itself, only carrying it by the staffs, but it is supposed to be carried. Specifically, he lays out later that Moses provided carts and oxen and all this other stuff to transport the tabernacle, but not the ark. The ark is to be carried everywhere it went. And you see, that it lies the problem and the lesson, first lesson we have in this as we move through this. Because notice it says in verse 7, they carried the ark of God on a new cart. Where did they get that idea from? Remember the Philistines, that's how they sent it in. And to look at this is how the world does this, it sure seemed a whole lot easier to do it that way. It sure seemed to be, sick man, the ark, got, the ark got from point A to point B that way, the way that they did it. But God is very specific. God said, this is how you do it. And guys, here's the key with this. The ends never justify the means. Just because we want to get from point A to point B, and even if point B is a God-honoring thing, if the process to get there does not honor him, it doesn't honor him. He is just as concerned about the process as he is the product. How we get there matters. How we do things matters. And I don't think it's coincidental that this takes place, notice, on the threshing floor of Chidon. The threshing floor. That is the place where the wheat is separated from the chaff where they would gather together and they would crush the the grain lightly so that it would be set. And then they'd toss it up in the air. And the chaff, which is the the non-edible part, the part that they want to get rid of, is light. And it would blow off. And as they continued to toss the basket in the air, the, the heavier grain would fall back into the basket and the chaff would blow off. They had these things on higher areas so the breeze would be blowing, separating the wheat from the chaff. New Testament uses that as an example or an illustration that the the wheat will be taken into the barn, the chaff will be burned. And guys, when it comes right down to it again, our lives, it tells us, Paul speaks to that. When it's all said and done and we stand before the Lord, our lives will go through and pass through as through fire. And we as Christians, born again believers, will be saved, but all that we do, all our works, everything else will be passed through the fire. And, it's, and he says that those things that are gold and precious stones, they will remain, but everything else will be burned away. All of those things that we did that maybe had a good result in the end, but we did it for selfish motives or we did it for other things, the process matters, not just the product. It's interesting that it tells us here that the, the oxen, as they're pulling this, they stumbled. There is no record anywhere in the Old Testament of any of the priests who are carrying the ark that they ever stumbled. Nowhere along the line. They carried it great distances. They carried it through unbelievable situations. They came to the Jordan River as they're about ready to cross the Jordan River into the promised land. It tells us that the Jordan River was flowing at flood stage which if you if, if just Google it some, when you get home later on, if you're interested, Jordan River flood stage. It'll blow your mind because you see pictures of the Jordan River, this nice, lazy little river that's, you know, maybe 20 feet across. Okay, no big deal. Flood stage, if you've ever been in an area where there's flash floods or whatever, you know, I mean, it comes out of nowhere. Well, flood stage, it's overflowing its banks. It is torrents of water just flowing by rapids going past. They get there and it's God told them to just step in. And he'll take care of the rest. (laughs) So they're standing there, and the first guys have to be the ones that have to put their foot in, and before it hits the water, God stops it up, and they step in on dry ground and walk across. We're going to cheat a little bit and jump to chapter 15. Look at this, because this, I think, is an important verse with this. Chapter 15, verse 26 it says because God was helping the Levites who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. God was helping them. God is assisting them. God is doing this thing. That Ark was heavy and four men carrying it over great distances, but God is helping when they're obedient and doing and following as God commands and as God directs. God is involved. God is helping. They've put all of that aside. They didn't, they didn't consult with the Lord. They didn't do that, it, and they put it on a cart, and here we go. It might sound, again, kind of harsh. Here's Uzzah, that, that he, all he's trying to do, I, I'm sure his heart was probably in the right place. I can't let the ark fall off of the cart and hit the ground. It'll, get, it'll fall into the mud. It'll fall into the dirt. So I reach out. You know what Uzzah means? Strength. Uzzah says, in my own strength, I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to handle this. And touched it with his hand.
1: Somehow, again, God said it was an irreverent act. Somehow, feeling that his hand
0: was holier, perhaps, than the dirt that it was about to fall into. But God said, don't touch the ark. If you do, you'll die. And Uzzah knew that. They all knew that. Anybody who was ever in charge of that, they were raised knowing this. He was a Koathite. That was their responsibility. They knew that. And so we see this. And guys, again, we look at this and we can line this up with with our own individual lives. We can look at this as to how, how we do this thing called church, how we honor God as we gather together and as we serve him as the church. Unfortunately, we see it running rampant everywhere that the, the church feels that there's a lot of new carts out there in the world that we can just put God onto and it's gonna, it's gonna help us. It's gonna help spread the gospel. If we become more like the world, if we do things the, the way the world does it and we just sprinkle in the gospel in there, man, it's gonna work. The problem is God's not behind that. God's not into us putting him on our carts. God specifically tells us. His word is clear. He never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you might say, well, what about, you know, Jesus said if if you can't put new wine into old wineskins? As we got to always remember that that is in context. I hear that so many times. I've been to even... Even hearing conferences or pastors speaking to that, that this is how we need to reach this generation, because you can't put new wine into old wineskins. We can't, we can't do it that way anymore because we can't, we got to put new wine into new wineskins. That's not what Jesus was talking about. Speaking in Matthew chapter 9, verse 14, it says, Then the disciples of John came to him, Jesus, asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come and the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. But no one puts a patch on an unshrunk unshrunk cloth or an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and worsens the tear. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wineskins will burst and the wine pours out of the wineskins and is ruined but they put new wine into fresh wineskins and both are preserved. Jesus is speaking of the, the old covenant, the old religious laws that were coming and the new wine, what he is speaking of is the new covenant that he is bringing. He is not, he's, he's talking about not mixing the old with the new because the new fulfills the old. And that's what he's speaking of. He's not talking about that every generation needs a new wineskin. He is speaking specifically of that we can't take this new covenant and mix it with the old. Hebrews chapter 8, just a little, don't have time to go into that tonight, just a little reading on your own. The author of Hebrews describes that very wonderfully about how Jesus fulfills, or with the new covenant, replaces the old, and even speaks even in these same terms, that that is what Jesus is speaking of. And I I just, I emphasize that because there, there is such a move in the church today Using these things and trying to use the world's techniques to bring to bring the gospel. And I'm not saying that we don't have to have to speak to them and share with them in certain areas. But guys, we can never compromise the word of God. Ever. Not one word. You see, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He is it, his word will stand true always. We don't have to try to finagle it or, or twist it or whatever. Put a worldly spin on it in order to make it palatable. In order to make it, if you've been around me long enough, you know one of the words I hate, relevant. There's nothing more relevant than the word of God.
1: We don't need to make it relevant. It's relevant on its own. <laughs> nothing more relevant. Well, it tells us when this happens, again, imagine this procession
0: that's going on, this worship that's broken out, everything that's taking place. And David feels that everything's going according to plan until this happens. And notice verse 12, it says, David was, I'm sorry, verse 11. Then David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah, and he called the place Perez Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of God that day, saying, How can I bring the ark of God home to me? So David did not take the ark with him to the city of David, but took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Thus the ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house three months, and the Lord blessed the family of Obed-Edom with all that he had. David, frustrated, angry at that this is how this is all taking place. This is how it all works out. And we're going to see God certainly works on his heart when we get to chapter 15. But he's frightened and he's like, how can I bring the ark of God into my house? How can I transport this? And it's interesting that they decide then to take it to this house of Obed-Edom. I wonder what his initial response was. Hey, yeah, we were taking this to Jerusalem, but the guy who touched it died, so we're gonna just drop it off at your house for a little while. <laughs> hey, thanks. But notice it says that it was there for three months, and the Lord blessed the family. See, God, did, God didn't change. This wasn't a, God being fickle. This wasn't God being, you know, just having a bad day. No, you honor God, God blesses. I mean, that's that's who he is. Then he blesses this family, this family, Obed-Edom. Can you imagine that, though? I mean, you got the Ark of the Covenant in your living room.
1: Kids, don't touch it. (laughs) I wonder if it affected what they did in the house. I wonder if it affected Obed-Edom when Mrs. Edom said something or did something that he normally
0: would maybe get upset about. he go, oh, <laughs> yes, dear, or whatever. <laughs> the kids probably behaved themselves a whole lot better. Probably affected what they watched on TV.
1: <laughs> how, would it, how would it change your life if the Ark of the Covenant was in your living room for three months? Would it? It shouldn't. Because again, the fulfillment, we'll touch on this time permitting tonight. The fulfillment
0: of the Ark of the Covenant not only resides in your home, he resides in you. He is present with us all the time. Jesus said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. That means he's with you all the time.
1: And that should change who we are. That should change how we behave. That should change how we interact with each other. Well, as we say here in verse 14, it's there for three months. Chapter 14 is
0: inserted here, not necessarily in chronological order. What we see here in chapter 14 actually transpires prior to this in 1 Samuel. Chapter 14, Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David with cedar trees, masons, and carpenters to build a house for him. David again has now set up the city of David, Jerusalem, as his home. And so now this, the king of Hiram, or I'm sorry, Hiram, the king of Tyre, starts sending some some supplies down for David to build his home there. Notice verse 2, David realized that the Lord had established him as king over Israel. That's a good perspective. He realized that it's the Lord who established him. He realized that it was the Lord that was doing all of these things. He realized that God had paved the way and had chosen him. And it was, God, it was because of God that all of these things were taking place. And that his kingdom was highly exalted for the sake of his people, Israel, the Lord's people. Verse 3 does speak of one of David's weaknesses. It says, Then David took more wives at Jerusalem, and David became the father of more sons and daughters. These are the names of the children born to him in Jerusalem. Shamua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhat, Elashua, Elphalat, Noga, Nefeg, Jeffia, Elshema, Belidia and Elphalat. The children that are born to David here notice though it says David took more wives. God is very clear in his words speaking of the kings that are to come, they're not to multiply money. They are not to go and into, back to Egypt to get horses, and they are not to multiply wives. Very clear God says that for the kings of, of, of Israel. Now David might be saying, well, I wasn't multiplying. I only added them one at a time. But <laughs> that's twisting God's word, and that guys, we can't do that. God is specific in that. But it was very culturally accepted at that time, especially for kings. Kings had multitudes of wives, harems, uh, and whenever they would make peace with somebody, they probably would marry the daughter of the king of that, that country that they made peace with. And, or if they're kind of not getting along too well, he'd marry off his daughter to the king so, to spy on him for me and, and this type of stuff. And that was very culturally
1: accepted. But guys, it's not biblically accepted. Just because something is culturally right doesn't
0: make it biblically right. Guys, this is our source. Again, as our culture continues to change and and become even more and more immoral, going further
1: and further away from God, the darker and darker it becomes, guys, the brighter we have to shine. Well, verse 8 says, When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed
0: king over all Israel, all the Philistines went up to search up in search of David, and David heard of it and went out against them. So here we hear the Philistines, the the enemies of Israel. And studying David's life in in 1 Samuel, we know that as he's running from Saul, he had even lived with the Philistines for a while and all of this. But now David is king and word comes. And, And so they come out and attack. And we saw, David recognized this, It was well known throughout that God was doing this and God was blessing. And guys, understand this. If you choose to follow the Lord, he is blessing you. Ministry is happening. He's using you. The enemy
1: is going to attack. The enemy is going to come out. It says, verse 9, Now the Philistines had come and
0: made a raid in the valley of Rephiam. Notice David what he does. Verse 10, David inquired of God, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines, and will you give them into my hand? Then the Lord said to him, Go up, for I will give them into your hand. So they came up to Baal-perizim, and David defeated them there. And David said, God has broken through my enemies by my hand, like the breaking through of waters. Therefore, they named the place Baal-perizim. David goes to God as we should every time an attack comes. Because again, when we understand that those are coming against us because we're walking with the Lord, because we're honoring Him, because our life is given to Him and He is using us and blessing us. I think Adrian Rogers once said that if you're not running into the enemy on a regular basis, if you're not butting him, heads with Him regularly, it means you're walking the same way He is. When we are walking with the Lord and serving Him, again, the enemy is going to come. And when He comes, Our response should be as David's. I love the prayer that he has here. It's a two-part prayer. No doubt coming with a heart that says, as we saw in verse 2, God, you've done this. You're the one blessing. You're the one who's called me. You're the one who's placed me in this situation. So now that they're coming against me, and I'm going to paraphrase, God, what do you want me to do? And what are you going to do? (laughs) This is, this, is, this is your doing. I'm in this situation because I'm following you. So I'm coming to you right now. What do you want me to do?
1: And what are you going to do? He says, go up against them and I will defeat them. He follows through with that and we see
0: that there was a great victory given they just go right into the gut of them. They just go right through them and they just plowed right through so much that David said, it's just like slapping the water, parting the waters. We went right through. Verse 12 says, they abandoned their gods there. So David gave the order that they burn them with fire. So the Philistines, as they're leaving, they leave all of their little idols behind. And so he gathers them together, big fire burns them. Verse 13, the Philistines made yet another raid in the valley. Guys, here's the thing. You have a victory today,
1: doesn't mean the enemy's going away forever. Plan on another attack very soon. The enemy is relentless.
0: But notice, and this is, this is very important, notice it says David inquired again of God. He didn't say, well, I know how to do this. Worked yesterday. We'll just go about it the same old way. We'll just go back at it. No, he inquired again of God. And God said to him, you shall not go up after them. Circle around behind them and come at them from the balsam trees. It shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then you shall go out to battle for God will have gone out before you to strike the army of the Philistines. Verse 16, David did just as God had commanded him and they struck down the army of the Philistines from Gibeon, even as far as Gezer. Then the fame of David went out into all the lands and the Lord brought the fear of him on all the nations. We see the same attack. They even come to the same place is the indication there. The enemy comes right back to the same spot where the victory was had before. Same thing. David's response the same. I'm going to go to God. I'm going to inquire from him. But God had a different answer. God had a different game plan this time around. Guys, God has gotten not a God of formulas. He is not into doing the same thing all the time, everywhere, the same way. I think there are way too many books written by people who have had success doing something a certain way that people grab that book and read that book. Here's the book we need to be reading
1: and he's the one we need to be seeking. I'm not saying go home and throw away all your books. That's not what I'm saying. There's great wisdom that
0: we can gather from others who have gone on before us and fought their battles and those types of things, but it should never, ever, ever replace seeking God and seeking him through his word, his direction. Because God's not going to be put in a box. Sometimes we can fall into a rut. I'm struggling in this area, and I had victory today, so tomorrow I'm going to do the same thing. And we go in unprepared because we didn't go in praying first. Or I'm struggling in a certain area, and I'm going to see how this person, this guy wrote a book about it, so I'm going to read that book and try to do it that way. Seeking the Lord, following after him. And notice David said, it says in 16, David did just as God commanded him and God did just what he said. I heard, I heard it put this way and I, and I love this. This is, this is one of these nuggets, guys, I, I grab a hold of and I want you to as well. Every victory and defeat that we have on a practical level
1: is secondary to the victory or defeat we have Before the Lord. What do I mean by that? Every victory we have over sin or whatever it is in our life is
0: secondary to our victory in obedience to God. Every defeat that we have is secondary to the defeat that we have before Him, doing things our way in our flesh, in our strength as opposed to seeking him and following hard after him. Every victory and every defeat that we face on a daily basis is secondary to that victory or defeat we have when we're before the Lord. And he says, do this, walk this way, turn this way, follow this way. If we are obedient in those things, guys, if we're victorious there against our flesh, against the
1: world, against whatever it is, we're we're victorious there, we will be victorious in the things that we face on a daily basis. David did just as he commanded, and God did just what he said. God struck them down,
0: and it says the Lord brought the fear of of David and the Israelites to all the nations as it spreads around. Well, chapter 15, as I mentioned, really kind of comes on the heels of chapter 14. Or I'm sorry, chapter 13. Of course, on 14. We just read 14. Chronologically, on the heels of 13. Now, David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said, no one is to carry the ark of God but the Levites. And that was another specific thing that God said. Not just any four people could carry the ark. They had to be Levites. For the Lord chose them to carry the ark of God and to minister before him forever. And David assembled all Israel at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place, which he had prepared for it. David gathered together the sons of Aaron and the Levites, the sons of Koath, Uriel, the chief, and 120 of his relatives, the sons of Merari, Asiah, the chief, and 220 of his relatives, the sons of Gershom, Joel, the chief, and 130 of his relatives, the sons of El- Elezephan, Shemaiah the chief, and 200 of his relatives, the sons of Hebron, Eliel the chief, and 80 of his relatives, the sons of Uziel, Aminadab the chief, and 112 of his relatives. Then David called Zadok and Abiathar the priests, and for the Levites, for Uriel, Asshiah, Joel, Shemiah, Eliel, and Abinadab, and said to them, you are the heads of the father's households of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, both you and your relatives, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord of Israel to place it in the place that I have prepared for it. Because you did not carry it at first, the Lord our God made an outburst on us, for we did not seek him according to the ordinance. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. The sons of the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles thereon, as Moses had commanded, according to the word of the Lord. David learned his lesson. He maybe was upset with God as to how the whole thing went down, but bottom line, he realized it wasn't God who was the problem, it was Him. It was them for not following this. Notice in verse two, or verse 13, I mean, because you did not carry it at first, the Lord made an outburst against us, for we did not seek him according to the ordinance. If David was out of line, absolutely, but so were all the priests. They all knew better. Every one of them. Not one of them said, hey, you know what? This whole cart thing is a really bad idea. God said, this is how we're supposed to do it. And guys, we as the body of Christ are all responsible. We are, we are all held accountable as to how, how we function, how we work, how we walk. We're supposed to hold each other accountable, to walk
1: us alongside one another. Now, he said, consecrate yourself. Set yourself apart. Purify yourself
0: so that you can do as you are called to do according to to the word of the Lord. Then David, verse 16, spoke to the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their relatives, the singers, with instruments of music, harps, lyres, loud-sounding cymbals, to raise sounds of joy. So the Levites, so here, here we got the he's setting up the worship, the worship team again. The chiefs of the Levites, their singers, all of the instruments, the music and everything. And verse 17, so the Levites appointed Heman, the son of Joel. Now I like that.
1: He-man. That, that says to me that real men worship Jesus. He-man. He's in charge. He's, he's
0: the one set out the son of Joel. And from his relatives, Asaph, the son of uh, Bariachah, or Bari- That's close enough. And from the sons of Merari, their relatives, Ethan, the sons of Cushiah. And with them, the relatives of the second rank, Zechariah, Ben. I love it when there's names like that in there. Ben, Jeziel, Shemariyamoth, Jehiel, Uni, Eliab, Benaiah, Messiah,
1: Mataliah, Eliphalu, Mekaniah, Obed-Edom, and Jael, the gatekeepers. So
0: the singers, Man, Asaph, and Ethan, were appointed to sound aloud symbols of bronze, and Zechariah, Aziel, and those guys that I mentioned before, with harps, tuned in to Alamoth and those other guys tuned in to Shemineth. Those words don't, there's a lot of wondering about that as to what those specifically mean. The Hebrew might indicate as to the pitch, they're no, the, the octaves or whatever. I'm not musically inclined, but that's indicating those that they're tuned to this. But the thing that's interesting about this that I like is God's that specific. God is laying this out and he's, 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 he's spelling this out. This, God is a God of details. Chani- Chaniah, the chief of the Levite was, Levites, was in charge of the singing. He gave instructions in singing because he was skillful. And I like that too. Here's this man who has been given a gift. I know it's a gift. And it's a gift I don't have. <laughs> but... Being able to to sing and and that and that and it, notice it says that he instructed others, guys. God gives you a gift. That gift isn't to be hoarded. That gift is to be shared. That gift is to be is to be extended out. And I love those that are, that are gifted musically, that are gifted in that area, that are willing to share with others and to raise up the next generation of, of worship leaders. And it's such a, such a blessing to see that. And here we see that this guy did it, and he did it because he was skillful. He had this gift, and he desired to share
1: it. Barakiah and Elkanah were gatekeepers for the ark. Shebaniah, Jehoshaphat,
0: Nethanel, Amazel, Zechariah, Beniah, and Eleazar, the priest, blew the trumpets before the ark of God. Obed-Edom and Jehiah were gatekeepers for the ark. Verse 25, so it was. David, with the elders of Israel and the captains over thousands, whom went to bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom, notice, with joy. Joy, rejoicing because god was helping the levites who were carrying the ark of the covenant of the lord they sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams verse 27 now david was clothed with a robe of fine linen with all the levites who were carrying the ark and the singers and chaniah the leader of the singing with the singers david also wore an ephod of linen thus all israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the lord with shouting and with sounds of horn and with trumpets and loud sounding cymbals with harps and liars. Now verse 29, I want to come back to that in a moment, but verse 29 as we finish the chapter, it happened when the ark of the covenant of the Lord came to the city of David that Michael, the daughter of Saul, one of David's wives, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and celebrating, and notice, she despised him in her heart. He saw she looks out the window. She sees David rejoicing, dancing, singing, praising God. And notice we, we made note of that, that he was wearing a linen, linen robe and an ephod. He was dressed like the rest of, the, of those that were leading the procession. He took off his kingly robes. He wasn't, and if, we, if you look in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6, it speaks of this that she said, oh, just look at the way you were displaying yourself. And, you know, basically he's talking about how, how humiliating you looked in that. And he was like, man, you ain't seen nothing yet. I'm going to worship God with everything I have. I mean, I, And bottom line, we see in her a bitterness, something deep-seated, because it says that she despised him in her heart. It wasn't just something that bugged her. This was deep-seated. And it tells us in Second in Samuel, because of that, she was barren from that moment forward. She didn't bear children. She was unfruitful. And guys, if we harbor bitterness in our hearts towards people that we might see God using in a special way or, or whatever that is, and we harbor any type of bitterness or, or any type of resentment or even holding on to, to hatred in our hearts, guys, that will affect our fruit. That can make us unfruitful. But on the flip side of that as well, as you are worshiping God and, and proclaiming and, and living it out, dancing, if you would, with your life because of all that God has done for you, expect people to hate you for it. Expect people to look at that and, and be upset with that, even a deep-seated hatred for you because, guys, we have what they don't. Those that don't have that joy, they're gonna ex- expect that to come. Now, we don't fight back against that. We continue to live that out, and hopefully they get to the point where they say, you know what, I'm tired of hating you for it. Would you tell me why you have it? And we can share that then, but we, can't, we shouldn't be surprised when that comes, especially, again, when we're living this, this out, the joy-filled, with joy as they're coming, as our life, is, again, should be defined by joy. Well, as we... Just close up, I want to go back to this because the, those, those verses, with joy as they're coming and dancing and singing and, and with trumpets and all of this praise and worship that is going on,
1: is it all because of just some gold box? No. Because of everything that gold box represented.
0: You see, God... Specifically, and I mentioned again in Exodus 25, he gave specific instructions on how it was to be built, but he also explained what it all meant. You see, there were three things inside the box. There were three things inside the ark. First of all, copy of the Ten Commandments,
1: which would remind anyone of their disobedience, their an ability to keep those commandments, those commandments
0: that have been broken. God said, don't do this, but I've done that. God said to do this, but I haven't. Also, what was in there was a, a, a jar of manna, that bread from heaven, that, that food from heaven that God fed the Israelites with while they were in the, in the wilderness for 40 years. But no doubt, again, that would remind them of the fact that they complained about it. God provided for them, but it wasn't good enough. We, we have manna in the morning. We have manna in the evening. We got manna. There's only so much you can do with manna. Complaining about it. Instead of realizing that it's the provision from the hand of God. Also, there was one other item in there. Aaron, Moses' brother, his, his rod that budded. A, a stick that they put down and almonds budded out of it to prove again that Aaron was the one that was chosen for that, th- that would remind
1: them of their rebellion. They, were, they, they rebelled against Moses and Aaron. But the beautiful part of the ark isn't what's inside it. It's what's on top of it. It's the mercy seat. God said, you put on top of this ark the mercy seat. The cherubim
0: that are on there, their wings touching. But he said, that's where I will meet you. And that's that's what the rejoicing is all about. Again, we understand Jesus is the fulfillment of that. But when we look at this, guys, God doesn't meet us as Christians, as born-again believers, in the box. He meets us at the mercy seat. When he looks down from heaven, as he says, when I look down, I will see the mercy seat. That's where the blood was put from the sacrificed animals, was put on the the mercy seat. When God looks, guys, when he looks down at us, he doesn't see the sin. Because we're clothed in Christ's righteousness. We're covered in
1: the blood of Jesus. He, he, He meets us in the mercy seat. And guys, that's worth rejoicing over.
0: See, our sin has been washed away. Our sin has been forgiven. That's why we worship. That should be the heart behind our worship. Guys, we should never come to to meet with God and to worship
1: God because he said so. We shouldn't do it out of obligation or duty. We should do it because that's a natural
0: response to the fact that Jesus took our sin. That he paid it all. That we stand before him blameless
1: because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. We're celebrating, amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for that amazing truth. That because of your blood shed for us, poured out for us, we stand forgiven. We, we have your mercy. Lord, it's, it's beyond anything that we can fully
0: comprehend or wrap our arms around, but Lord, we receive it fully and we thank you for it. And Lord, it's because of that that we praise you and we worship you.
1: Lord, it's our desire that our lives would be such that the joy would just pour out of us. Lord, that, that the world would see that. And that the,
0: when the world gets darker and darker, Lord, we don't need to become like the world. As a matter of fact, Lord, we need to shine ever brighter so that those who are trapped, those who are deceived can see the light. You've called us the light of the world. Lord, let us shine brightly for you. If you're here tonight and you've never embraced that truth. You've never invited Jesus into your heart. You've never surrendered your life to him. I want to invite you right now just to go before him in your heart and say, God, I know I'm a sinner.
1: I know that I have been disobedient. I've been ungrateful. I've been rebellious. But Jesus, I thank you for taking my place in that. For becoming my sin. And I ask you right now to come into my heart. Come into my life. Wash me clean. Forgive my sin and give me that gift of eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a good rest of the week and a good finish
0: to the year. God bless.